following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, as I mentioned um, last week when I introduced uh, Brother Eugen to preach to us, I pointed out that before we jump back into our Luke series, uh, which we have been in for a couple of years now, um, we're going to take a little break this summer. And I want to look at this book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament for about six weeks. Uh, be, and then once we get into August, into the fall, uh, we'll jump right back into the um, Luke study that we've been doing uh, for a while now. And so if you have your Bibles with you, we'd invite you to turn to that book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 in this opening message today. And uh, it reads, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already in the ages before it. It has, already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, as we explore this summer, this book of Ecclesiastes, we ask for your wisdom, your insight, your understanding to the truths found in this difficult book. Help us to understand our own journey by looking at the journey of this man who looked at the weariness of life and in the midst of it yet found faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, I uh, feel like I have to get the cobwebs out. You know, it's uh, been a while since I've been up here. Uh, but I'm glad to be able to be back into the pulpit. Um, let's just jump right into this book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of a series of books of what's typically called uh, the wisdom books of the Bible. And the wisdom books are basically Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Now, the wisdom books occupy a very unique place in the Bible because almost all the other books in the Bible are messages from God to us, basically Thus saith the Lord. You know that this is what God wants. He's revealing himself to us by his words. 
But when we look at wisdom literature, it's not so much looking at God directly, but it's looking at His creation in order for us to learn something about the Creator, about the God who made all of these things. In other words, the wisdom writers are essentially saying to us, let's take a look around at the world which God has made so that we can understand who He is, so that we can learn something about Him. It would be like if I were to visit your house when you were not home one day, and I would basically look all around, carefully inspecting everything from your bedroom to your closets to your study and your desk to your kitchen. And then based on the clothes that I find that you wear, um, the kind of food that you eat, your browser history on your computer, uh, your general cleanliness or messiness, um, I would then try to figure out what kind of a person you are, who you are. And that's in essence what these wisdom writers are doing. They're looking at the world around that God has made and saying, what can we figure out about God by looking at this world that he created? And here's the difficult truth. The assessment that a lot of these wisdom writers make at times can be really brutal, not only of the world that God has made, but also of um, God himself. One of the things that we can learn from the wisdom books is this, that the faith of the Bible is not a mindless faith. It is not a blind faith of bumper stickers and empty slogans that are plastered on posters of kittens and flowers like this, you know? Um, and you've seen these posters, right? At every Christian bookstore, they have them, right? And I think in truth, there is this kind of accusation of Christianity. Like, if you want to become a Christian, you basically have to turn your mind off. You know, it's, it's not a very intellectual faith. You know, you, you sort of dumb it down in order to say that you believe. But I am telling you, that's not the faith that I see in the pages of the Bible. The way faith that we find in the Bible is a faith that has the courage to wrestle with some of life's most difficult questions. Let me get rid of this so it doesn't distract you. <laughs> um, why is there so much evil in the world? Why do the righteous suffer? Why does it seem like often God is distant and unreachable? And as we'll see, the writer of Ecclesiastes ask some of the most difficult questions of life based on life as he has experienced it. So much so, so that some people have wondered whether the writer of Ecclesiastes could even be called a Christian or at least a follower of God. And this raises the obvious question, who is the author of Ecclesiastes? Who wrote it? Well, if you look at the very opening words of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem... It seems pretty clear that King David's son Solomon wrote this book. And it very well is possible that Solomon wrote this book. But there's also a growing argument among Bible scholars that it probably wasn't King Solomon who wrote this book, but another writer who came after him who basically put himself in the shoes of King Solomon. 
so that he was writing from Solomon's perspective. Now, I don't really want to belabor the point and spend any more time arguing the scholarly debate that's going on here as to whether it was Solomon or somebody who was acting like Solomon, because I don't really even know if the answer to that question is necessarily all that important. So whether it's the actual King Solomon, the historical figure who wrote this book, or a later writer speaking through the voice of Solomon, either way, Ecclesiastes is asking us to see life through the eyes of King Solomon, a man who possessed unimaginable power and wealth and wisdom. In other words, what Ecclesiastes is doing is, what does life look like through the perspective of a man who has everything that he could possibly dream of, everything that you could want? Because from all accounts, Solomon had it all. Good looks, incredible wealth and power, incomparable wisdom, and truthfully, more women than he knew what to do with. More beautiful woman than you could imagine. He could, in essence, sleep with a different one of his wives or concubines each night and not repeat himself for about three years. And so, in other words, King Solomon lived the kind of fantasy life, the kind of life without limits that you and I could only dream about having. But as we'll see, the reality of that life doesn't always live up to the fantasy of that life. Now, one other kind of additional note that I want to make about the author before we jump into what he actually says here is that uh, throughout the book, the author refers to himself in the Hebrew, he calls himself Kohelet. Kohelet. Now, that word literally means one who gathers people together or one who assembles people. And so often it's translated, that word Kohelet is translated as preacher or teacher. And the reason is because the implied idea of gathering people is so that you can teach them or instruct them. And so if you ever hear me through the course of this series talk about the preacher or the teacher, just understand that I'm referring to the author, King Solomon, or at least the persona of King Solomon. Now, I've entitled this series, Life Under the Sun. And the reason is because this phrase, under the sun, occurs 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here are just a few examples of their occurrence. In Ecclesiastes 1, 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 2, 17, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 3, 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, a lot of people have asked, what does he mean when he keeps repeating himself, under the sun, under the sun? Now, a lot of people have argued that what Solomon meant when he said under the sun was he was basically looking at life from a secular viewpoint. In other words, imagining a universe without God in the picture. That's what it means to see life, quote, under the sun, meaning beyond, not, not beyond and seeing the heavens and seeing God, but only seeing earth alone. Now, 
I don't think that that's exactly accurate, the best way to think about under the sun. Because the reason why I resist that interpretation is because it seems to suggest that once you become a Christian, once you believe in God, you no longer have to struggle with the kind of questions that Solomon asked. As if faith instantly clears up all of the messiness of life. Like, oh, now I'm a Christian, now I get everything. But I don't think that that's true. I think even as Christians, we too understand what it means to live life under the sun. In other words, even as a Christian, there are still great mysteries to life that just don't make sense to me. God still seems hidden in many ways. He seems elusive. And so when Solomon says, life under the sun, I think he's basically saying, this is just life as you and I experience it. Whether you're a Christian or not, we can all sympathize. We can all identify with the struggles that this man Solomon was going through. Life is still a mystery. God remains hidden to us in many ways. C.S. Lewis, who is arguably one of the greatest defenders of Christianity in the last generation, wrote some powerful, best-selling books that defended Christianity. And so he became known as one of the staunch defenders of our faith who brought so much clarity to a lot of people about what it means to believe in God. But in 1960, his wife, Joy Davidman, lost her battle with cancer, and she died. And she was the love of his life. And Lewis went into this very deep and dark depression as he grieved the loss of his wife. And in the following year, he published a book unlike any other book he had written called A Grief Observed. And in this book, he spoke so plainly, so honestly of the pain that he was going through that many of even his most devoted followers who read that book were disturbed and even began to wonder if C.S. Lewis had lost his faith. These are some of the excerpts that Lewis captured in his journey, struggling with God to understand why he took his beloved wife from him. Who still thinks that there is some device, if only he could find it, which will make pain not to be pain? It really, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, where I shall suspect that you don't understand. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. 
There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Listen, if Christianity is real, if God is real, we cannot be afraid of honesty like this. We cannot bury questions like this in our hearts out of some misguided sense of politeness toward God of not wanting to offend him. I believe that instead God invites us to bring our deepest pains, our most pressing questions to him so that we might gain a heart of understanding. And that is what is at the heart of wisdom literature. It's inviting us to go on the same journey as these writers and ask God the difficult questions and wrestle with him to find the answers. Well, the first observation that the preacher makes at the start of his book is simply this. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So the ESV translates this difficult word as vanity. Um, But I don't know if it quite captures what the writer of Ecclesiastes was trying to communicate. The, many of you who grew up with the NIV, the New International Version, are probably more familiar with that phrase, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And I would argue that even that word meaningless doesn't really capture what the preacher is trying to say. Because that word vanity or meaningless literally actually is translated as a vapor or smoke or mist, a breath. I think probably the best way to understand what he's trying to say is if you think about somebody's breath in wintertime, right? The vapor that comes out of someone's mouth. And you see it form in the cold winter air, and then in the very next second, it's gone. In an instant, it disappears. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So instead of saying vanity or vanities or meaningless, meaningless, another way you could think about it is thinking what the the guy is saying is vapor, vapor, mist, mist. It's like nothing. There's nothing there. There's no substance. In an instant, that is what life is like. There and in the next split second, life is gone. It's also not only talking about how brief life is, but how elusive life is. That it's almost like trying to grab vapor, and you try to take hold of smoke. And the moment you open your hand and you open your fist, that smoke is not there. There's nothing there. There's, so it's sort of like this person that's trying to figure life out, that's trying to find meaning in life, trying to make sense of life. But he's saying, life is like smoke. You try to capture it and contain it and control it and understand it. But it has this way of just getting away from you. And you don't really understand. You don't know 
what life really is. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Usually when you say something like this, you would instead reverse it and say, A generation comes and a generation goes. But the writer of Ecclesiastes flips it around to emphasize the fact that every generation is replaced by another generation. And then he goes on in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, none of us are remembered. You know, I think there is a side in every single one of us that we don't want to be forgotten when we die. Isn't there a side in you that prays to God that when you pass from this earth that your name isn't going to be wiped out forever? but at least somebody is going to think about you once in a while and remember you? But here's the sad truth that the teacher says is, you know, the sad fact is all of us are forgotten not that long after you pass from this earth. And with each generation, the old ones are forgotten. Nobody remembers. I've read this quote to you before from that movie, Shall We Dance?, spoken by the character that's played by Susan Sarandon, giving an explanation for why it is that we get married to one another. And she says this, We need a witness to our lives. There's a billion people on the planet. I mean, what does any one life really mean? But in, ma in a marriage, you promise to care about everything. The good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the mundane things. All of it, all of the time, every day, you're saying your life will not go unnoticed because I will notice it. Your life will not go unwitnessed because I will be your witness. In other words, what she's saying is the reason why we get married is because all of us want a witness to our lives. It gives us a sense of significance that my life counted for something. And so the pain of the widow or the pain of the widower is not just the loss of that loved one, but it's the loss of all of the shared memories that that person takes to the grave. And there are few things more lonely than being the sole survivor, the last survivor of the most cherished memories of your life. Everyone that you shared them with is now gone, and you're all alone with those memories to yourself. Best-selling Christian author and seminary professor Eugene Peterson was lecturing one day at his seminary in class when he was excitedly interrupted by one of his students who asked him, Professor, Professor Peterson, uh, how do you feel about the fact that Bono, the lead singer from U2, actually quoted you recently? And Eugene Peterson replied, uh, who is Bono? <laughs> And probably many of you are thinking, who is Eugene Peterson, right? <laughs> um, this is just the nature of life. We're all forgotten. We're all like that vapor, wanting so badly significance. But in the next minute, you're just like dust. You're gone. It's interesting, my son Luke, who's uh, about to enter high school as a freshman, I I'm pretty sure he knows the starting lineup of every single NBA, current NBA player on every NBA team. 
Um, and so one day, I just decided to quiz him, and I said, hey, Luke, uh, do you know who Carl Malone is? Uh, how about Clyde Drexler? What about Penny Hardaway? How about Alonzo Mourning? Just blank stare. <laughs> he didn't even know they were basketball players. That's just the way life is, isn't it? One day you're on top of the world. One day you think you're immortal. And the next day, your life is gone. In an instant. In a flash. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes thinks about this. The absurdity of this. And he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, as he thinks about the brevity of life, he in essence is asking, if you look at the bigger perspective of history, what's the point? What's the point? I mean, I'm trying so hard to find meaning in my life, to make my life feel significant. But then he says, is it really worth it? Does it really matter? You know, you carve out this little place in human history for yourself, and within a few years, you're forgotten. And nobody's visiting your gravestone. And your grandchildren have moved on with their life. And you're just a picture on the fireplace mantle after a while. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, is any of this striving worth it in the end? And you know, I think that's a dangerous question, isn't it? I think it's the kind of question none of us really wants to ask or dwell on too long because the truth is we're afraid what the answer is going to be. Is it worth it? Is any of this in the long run worth it? The second observation that the teacher makes is this. Not only that nothing lasts, but nothing is new. Nothing is new under the sun. So if you're not thoroughly depressed yet, let me try to clinch the deal here. <laughs> goes on in verses 5 through 9. Sun rises, sun goes down. It goes right back and rises again. Wind blows south, wind blows north. Around and around the wind goes, and it gets right back to where it started. All the streams running into the sea, but the sea never rises. It stays at the exact same level, and then the streams just keep flowing, season in, season out. And he says at the end, it's all just weariness. It's all just drudgery. Man can't even speak in these terms. It's so miserable. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing. The ears are not filled with hearing. Whatever has been will be. What has been done uh, is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. What the teacher is saying is, is this. He has this nagging suspicion that at one time, what he thought was a life of progress actually turns out to not be progress at all. But it's as if life is on this endless loop, this repeat cycle. And it's just the same stuff gets rehashed and repeated over and over and over again. And now that I'm in my 40s, uh, I'm beginning to kind of see life like that. You know, um, I find it much harder to get stimulated by television shows that I watch because, in truth, everything seems rehashed, you know? Whether it's the latest 
trendiest sitcom. You know, it's the old jokes that I heard from the 70s, just being packaged in a different way. Fashion is the same way, right? I mean, all the stuff that was one considered outdated, just hold on to that stuff and lock it away because it's going to come back in fashion, you know? There's, a sleep, oh, there's been tons of sleepovers at our house lately. All these teenage girls running around. And I remember this girl was wearing these shorts, and I, it caught my attention because I was like, those are 70s shorts. <laughs> you know, those, are, those are shorts that people used to wear in the 70s. And I thought, wow, that's back in fashion now, I guess. Um, and what the writer seems to be saying is, is the more you live life, the harder it is not to get jaded about life. Not to basically feel like, you know what, nothing changes. Nothing really changes in life. There's really no such thing as progress. It's just an illusion. Now, some of you may take offense to Solomon's argument and say, well, that's such a pessimistic view. Uh, That's ridiculous. Of course there is progress. I mean, how can you say that there's no progress in humanity? What about central air and heating? What about personal computers and tablets and iPhones? What about electricity and antibiotics and modern plumbing? Um, In other words, if I could put King Solomon into a time machine and bring him to the 21st century, I bet you he wouldn't write the book of Ecclesiastes the same way. I bet you I could make him swallow his words and realize, actually, we've got it pretty good. Life is good. But Solomon isn't talking about technology. He's talking about the deepest levels of the human condition. And what, he's, what the argument is, is for all of science's and technology's advances that we've made, have we really been able to improve the quality of our life all that much? Have we really solved life's most fundamental problems that humanity has wrestled with from the very beginning? In other words, are we really as 21st century creatures any happier than the ancients were? Are we really? Are we convinced of that? That we live a happier existence? Zach Eswine puts it like this. Every human being has tried to navigate food, clothing, and shelter. Each one has wrestled with what it means to work to provide a way of life, to make their way, to hope and weep for their children. Crimes, wounds, and enemies are not new. Handling weather patterns, sickness, romance, aging, sadness, forgiveness, commitment, laughter, and dreams has not originated with us. Putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact, delivered us from dictators, or eradicated a selfish heart. New inventions make our bones heal quicker, but not our minds not our hearts. It's striking how despite all of the knowledge that we've gained in so many fields of study, how we have made so little progress in genuinely improving the human condition. But instead of keeping it so cosmically out there, let me bring it to a very personal level, and I'll close with this. I mean, when you're younger, Everything feels new. Everything feels fresh. Everything is exciting. Everything's a new discovery, something you never knew before. And as you're growing up, it really feels like your life is moving forward, doesn't it? There's progress being made all the time. You're graduating from one grade to the next. 
And then you're thinking about high school. And then you're thinking about college and what you're going to major in. And then you're thinking about your career and getting married and having children. And it's all exciting. It's all new. It's all progress. And you're looking at all the possibilities ahead, about, ahead of you of what could be, of what you hope will be. All your dreams are still in your future. It just seems like life is one big open adventure that you want to tackle. Who will I marry? What will my kids be like? Where will I live? What will I do for a living? In other words, as the proverb goes, the world is your oyster. And you just are so excited about life. But I want to challenge you that as you get into deeper adult life, that sense of excitement and progress can often give way to a sense of disappointment and even despair. And suddenly the world and your life doesn't seem like an endless possibility of futures. You know, that the sky's the limit on what you could achieve one day in your life. And you begin to ask yourself actually darker questions. Will I ever be married? Will I ever have the courage to walk away from this dead-end job that I never even wanted in the first place? And if I do, do I have any hopes of finding anything better? Is this the best that my marriage is ever going to get? Are my children going to be okay by themselves out there in the world? Are they going to break my heart one day? Am I ever going to change and be the person that I so desperately want to be? Am I ever going to overcome these habits that are destroying me? And you know, I want to say this. There may be a lot of aspects of our current life that we're not happy with. But one of the things that keeps us going is the hope that tomorrow could be a better day, isn't it? That's the truth, is that maybe there's a lot of things we're very discontent about in the present. But what gets you motivated to wake up and go into another day is that this day could be a new day. It could be different. It could be better. There's hope. It's that pursuit that keeps us going. It's that pursuit that keeps us hungry, that keeps us believing But I want to ask you this difficult question. What do you do when you're not sure about tomorrow anymore? What do you do when you wake up and it's hard to convince yourself that tomorrow could be a better day than today? What do you do when you start losing hope that things are ever going to get better in the things that matter most in your life? that your best days are over, that this is as good as it's going to get. I think that's what Solomon is asking us to look at in life. Because all of us hit that wall one day when more doors are closing than opening in your life. And you begin to assess your life and you say, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this as good as it gets? And the question is, What's going to get you up and out of bed and dressed into work that morning when you begin to feel that way? Well, in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, we find this interesting 
passage. And it says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I think this is what Paul is saying to the Romans. Our frustrations with the brokenness of life, quote, under the sun, point us to a greater hope that only God can provide. And in that way, even the brokenness of life is God's grace to us to remind us, don't put your hope in those things ultimately because they can ultimately never fully deliver on their promise. The message of the Bible is that you need that frustration because the truth is, if you had it all, then you may not feel the need for God. But even in the midst of that brokenness and trials and the struggles and the pains of life, those are like pointers to God saying you've been putting your hopes in all the wrong things. You've been living for the wrong things, things that can never satisfy. And that is why you're left brokenhearted. That's why you're in despair and you feel that there is no hope. Because all of creation suffers under that curse of this brokenness. Relationships fall apart. Children go astray. Cancer happens. And on and on it goes. The economy has a downturn and massive unemployment arises. And in all of this, God says that these are pointers to a more eternal hope that this world can never take away from you. And then the message ultimately is this. In Jesus, our efforts are never in vain. In Jesus, our efforts are never in vain. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now listen, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that everything is going to go smooth in your life. It doesn't mean all you have to do is pray and everything gets answered and everything gets fixed in an instant. That's not the promise of Scripture. Because even as a Christian, things can go south. Even as a Christian, there could be seasons of struggle and pain and, and grieving. But the greater promise is this that we have a God who remembers us and who watches over us so that even that season of going through the valley of the shadow of death is not in vain. There's a purpose to it all because God, our shepherd, ensures it to be so. He designed it to be so. And by faith, I can believe that and keep walking, keep moving forward in my life. There are some of us in this room that will live through a lifetime of a difficult marriage. I'm sorry, that's the difficult reality. There are some of us who may never get married, who have wanted to get married in this room. There may be some of us who are going to lose a loved one prematurely through death or accident or disease. 
These are the realities of living under the sun. But the promise is is that Christ gives us a greater hope that not even death can take away from us. There is a hope beyond the grave that even every single thing you've done, you may try your entire life to change your spouse. They never may change one iota in the way that you would like. But that effort is not in vain because Christ remembers it. You see, if you need the immediate gratification of a world that responds to your beck and call, you're never going to get it, and you may even walk away from God disappointed. But when you can submit yourself by faith to his loving care, then even through the things that he is going to ask you to journey through, you never have to say, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Because Christ says, I bring meaning into your life. Everything has meaning. You may not even be able to see it with your own eyes. The fruit of your hard labors, of everything you're doing. But the message is, keep being faithful. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work that God has called you to. Because your labor is not vanity. It's not in vain. But you are remembered by God. That's why the great prophet Habakkuk was able to close his writings with these words in Habakkuk 3, verse 17 to 19. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet Like the feet of a deer, he enables me to go on the heights. This is not just the picture of a man who's trying to put a brave face to the mounting problems of his life. This is not the power of positive thinking and trying to have a good attitude. This is the heart of faith that believes that no matter what I go through, I have a shepherd who watches over me. And when I believe that, then I believe that life has meaning, life has purpose, that nothing is in vain. Let's pray. There's a lot of darkness in this book, Ecclesiastes, and even as I've been reading through this book and preparing this series, um, I've been thinking that I feel like if Emmanuel's average age was closer to 65, (laughs) the series might actually resonate a bit more. Uh, Because I think for a lot of you that are like in your 20s and in your 30s and stuff, you're like, man, what a downer, you know, like, because your life in truth is sort of on the upswing, you know, you... You actually are still very excited about life. You know, you have everything to look forward to. Our first kid is coming. We're our second kid. And it's so cute playing with these little children. They're, they're starting to walk now. And I'm having so much fun. Life is fun. Life is exciting. Uh, and I don't know if I even want to hear the series and have you bring me down. But I, I want to say this. I think even if you're in your 20s or 30s, even if you're a youth group child here, uh, I don't think that it takes a certain age to discover the brokenness of life. And I suspect some of you, even in your teens or your 20s or your 30s, have already 
taken some hits in life. And in truth, you have questions of God. Um, you've experienced some setbacks that you never anticipated. And you're asking yourself, why is life turning out like this? And where is God in all of this? Uh, if you start thinking about too long your mortality, it gets really depressing, you know? As much as you feel your life is so important, the truth is when you die, how long is it going to be before your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, only know you as a picture in a photo album that their parents crack out like once every few years? You know, that's the truth. That's the harsh reality of life. But the promise of God is, I will never forget you. I have written you on the palm of my hand. And even if a mother forgets her child, I will never forget you. And the truth is, you're going to hit a wall one day if you haven't already, where you may wake up one morning and find it hard to get out of bed and say, I don't know if I believe anymore that tomorrow is going to be better than it was yesterday or today. I don't know really how much hope I hold out that things are going to get better in my life. The question is, what are you going to do when you wake up feeling like that? Like, it's never going to be good news anymore. It's all downhill from here. It's only doctor's visits and bad news from the laboratory tests and uh, struggles with my adult children who are giving me a hard time and on and on. What are you going to do when your life goes into a season like that? God says, if you know Jesus, then he says, even in the darkest of days, there is purpose, there is meaning to your life. And so you can keep waking up to a new day and taking a step forward because Christ remembers everything. And the people that you try to love in your life may never acknowledge it, may even misunderstand it, may abuse you. And the things that you try to give to others may never be returned to you. But God says, let nothing move you and keep being faithful because I have redeemed you. I know you by name. And even one cup of cold water given in my name will be remembered for eternity because of what you've done for me. And so suddenly, life has the possibility of a whole new kind of meaning Say, I can wake up each day with hope and anticipation of what God wants to do through me. So can I just invite you right now to just spend a few moments in prayer as you come before the Lord? And can I just invite you to follow the footsteps of Kohelet, the teacher? Are there some nagging questions in your heart that you feel are not appropriate to ask of God? Things that you've gone through in life that you wonder and say, what, 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 what was the deal with that? I just don't get it. And maybe this would be an opportunity for you to just bring it to God and just lay it at his feet and say, you know, God, this doesn't make sense to me at all. I just, I just don't get it. In my limited understanding, um, I just feel like this was horrible. This was not right. But I want to lay it at your feet and give it to you, God and ask you to give me, in replacement, a heart of faith, 
a heart of understanding, a heart that can trust you even in the midst of things that you're calling me to go through in life. Would you just pray that a few minutes and our worship team will come forward and uh, lead us in a songs of response. Thank you.